All right. Uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. And when you are there, if you would please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This is the word of the Lord. So as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we are still in the opening sections, the opening chapters. This section, uh, Luke chapter 2, 41 through 51, will be the focus of this week. Uh, This is what's known as the silent years, and that is the title of the study, the silent years. The silent years is what uh, we talk about when we refer to the time between Jesus' birth and the start of his earthly ministry. There is very little recorded about Jesus during this time. There's very little that we know about Christ and what he did. There are many false accounts of Christ and what he did during this time, but suffice it to say that the authentic gospels, the ones that have stood the test of time and stood the examination and close inspection uh, on the character and the nature of them, they have all been proven false. And the silent years refer then to this period of time. And the only authentic gospel that speaks to this span of time between his birth and the start of his earthly ministry is the gospel of Luke. And this is the only account that we have during that time. It's when Jesus is 12 years old. And there are many people today who, have, who seek to make Jesus whatever they want to make Jesus. There are many people today who seek to say that Jesus was like this or Jesus was like that, that he wasn't really God, that he never claimed to be God, and that in fact Jesus was a really good moral teacher misunderstood by his disciples, and that it was the disciples' fault for misconstruing his words, misquoting him, forging documents to say what he was like, and that really Jesus was this good, moral, ethical teacher, and that we really misunderstand him. This is the teaching of the Muslims. The Imams will teach this, that Jesus was a prophet, a prophet of God, but that he never claimed himself to be God, and that the Bible is true so far as it speaks to God's good teachings, but not true in far as where it says that Jesus is God. And they say that those are fabrications that came later at the hands of the disciples. This is also true of most secular scholars. They will say that Jesus, the historical Jesus, must have existed. There's enough proof to say that he was real. But then the question is, did he ever claim to be God? Did he do the things that the scriptures say that he did? What what are we to do with this historical Jesus? And the conclusion that most of these people come to is that the disciples and the Christians who continue to profess the faith, that they have misunderstood or misquoted what Jesus said and what he was about. This section of scripture, I think, speaks directly to that. This section of scripture helps us to know not what was Jesus like at the start of his earthly ministry, not what could Mary and Joseph have come up with about Jesus, but who did Jesus understand himself to be? And this is recorded when Jesus is 12 years old. 
This is not recorded right before he launches into a successful earthly ministry for three years, starting a political revolution. This is 19 years before he ever launches his public ministry, that this account is recorded. And the wording and the statements here help us get a glimpse as to who Jesus was and what he thought even about himself, who his self-revelation or his self-revelation and his self-disclosure, what that tells us about him. And you'll see this story is a narrative and it moves really through four distinct moments, four distinct points. We see first that the, the scene is going to be set for us and then we're going to have a problem that gets introduced to us. And then we're going to have this dialogue that goes back and forth between Mary and Jesus. And then you're going to get this closing sentence or this closing resolution as to what happens after that encounter with Jesus. And so we're going to start by looking at how Luke sets the scene about Jesus at this moment in time. And that starts with us in verse 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now this statement here is setting the scene. Luke is introducing us. The last account we have of Jesus is just that he, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then the scene changes, it flashes black, and then it comes back online. And we see that now a transition of time has happened. And his parents were told, go to Jerusalem every year faithfully. Now, this detail is not one to just glance over. This is not frivolous writing by Luke. Luke is telling us something about Mary and Joseph, namely that they are obedient and faithful Jews. You see, the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 16 and Exodus 23 commands that the males would present themselves three times a year to God. That was at the three different feasts that the Jews celebrated, the Passover being one of those three feasts. And here we're told that not only does Joseph go faithfully year after year as it is commanded by the law, but also Mary, his wife, joins him. Now it's not commanded for the women to go with the men. It's not in the law for that to happen. So Mary going is a unique display of devotion. It's a unique display of piety on her half. And so we get this detail that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. So they faithfully obey the law. They faithfully follow through with the Feast of Passover. And then we're told in verse 42 that when he was 12 years old, that is when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now there's a textual question here, which is, does Jesus go for the first time when he's 12? Does Mary and Joseph go all the other years and then the first time when he's 12 years old, he joins them for this Passover? Or is this just signifying that they go all the time together and that at the 12th time that they went, that this is when these events take place? There's not enough evidence in the text for us to know one way or another what's happening here. But there is some evidence to suggest that this might have been the first time Jesus goes to the Passover. Namely, if you remember the account of Herod seeking Jesus' life, you would notice that for Mary and Joseph to travel that far into Roman territory would have been, and right into Herod's jurisdiction, that would have been quite a risk. So it might be that Herod has died at this point. He does die in these interim years. And now this is the first time that Jesus is going to be allowed to go with them back to the Passover because Herod's no longer seeking his life because this Herod has passed away. So there's some questions there about whether this is the first time that Jesus goes or not. But the question here in the setting that's being set is, what is the big deal about this being the Passover? What is the significance of this event? Because this is not, again, just some random story that Luke pulls out of thin air. Remember, this is the one account that we get between his birth and between the start of his earthly ministry. The next time we meet him in the Gospel of Luke, he's going to be baptized by John. 
And so what happens, what is the significance of this account? Now, to set the scene appropriately, we don't just need the chronology of it, that Jesus is 12 years old. We also need to know what exactly happens when the Jews were to go up to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Now, if you want details as to what the Passover is all about, you have to go to Exodus chapter 12, where God institutes the Passover. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, you're going to see that God makes the Jews celebrate the Passover not to add burden to them, but to remind them about what he's already done. So in Exodus chapter 12, we have the account of the Passover. Remember, the people of Israel are being oppressed by the Egyptians. They are now being, uh, they're about to be let free, let go because Moses is going to do the final work, the final sign of God, which is to kill all of the firstborn of the people of Egypt. And this is going to display God's miraculous power over life and death and over even the Egyptians and all their gods. And as soon as this is happening, Moses is preparing the people. He's threatened the plague. He's preparing the people. And when he prepares them, he says in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 12, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st month at evening. Or until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now in scripture, this feast, the Passover, is referred also to the feast of unleavened bread. And the reason you have to know that is if you go up to verse 7, you see that these things happen in conjunction together. So you have the people offering a sacrificial lamb, verse 7, and when they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it, they shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they should eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff at your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The reason they eat this feast with unleavened bread, remember the whole meal is symbolic. The lamb is symbolic of God passing over the sins of Israel. The bread is symbolic of the quickness with which they have to depart because it's unleavened bread, so they can't let the bread leaven over time. That's why he commands them to eat unleavened bread. It says, you shall eat it in haste with your belt fastened and with your staff at the ready. And he also says, add bitter herbs to the bread. And the bitter herbs are to remind the people of the bitter affliction that they are departing from in Egypt. And as soon as they do this and they're delivered from this, he commands them to observe this same feast year after year. And the reason he commands them to do that is as a reminder. He commands them to never forget the faithfulness that he has displayed to the people. He tells them to not only do this, but he also tells them to teach it to their children. He says in verse 24 of Exodus 12, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say that it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped at this revelation. 
So the people are told not only to keep this feast, but they're also told to pass it on and to teach it to their children. Now, the reason I'm going into all this detail is because we're setting the scene for what's happening in Jesus' time. So here in Luke chapter 2, we have Jesus going up with his parents to celebrate the Passover. And you can imagine Jesus being a child is, falls into this category of children who are going to be educated about why they celebrate the Passover. So you can imagine Jesus going with his parents and his parents along the road journeying from Nazareth to Jerusalem, about an 80-mile journey, a handful of days, about four days. They journey together, and on this journey, there's this opportunity of teaching. Mary and Joseph get to teach Jesus about what the Passover is about. And they're teaching Jesus about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and why they have the bitter herbs and why they eat unleavened bread and what they're going to celebrate and why they buy a lamb when they get there. And on this journey, as we just finished studying, some of the Psalm of Ascents would have been sung. We just finished studying some of those. And as they ascend to Jerusalem, they worship with the Psalm of Ascents. And so Jesus is being edified by the people as a child, and he is being taught about the Passover through his faithful parents who are obedient year after year after year. Not to teach him anything new, but to just remind him about the faithfulness that God has always demonstrated to them. This is an example of the regular practice of obedience, and this is an example not only of what the Jews were called to do, but also what Christians are called to do. You see, when Jesus comes, he resurrects, and we celebrate that resurrection every single Lord's Day. We celebrate together, and we gather together as a congregation to remind ourselves once again of what God has done through his Son, the accomplishment of sin on the cross and the resurrection and the power of life that Jesus then offers. We gather every day to rem- or every week to remind ourselves through fellowship about these truths. And we're told as well to pass these truths on to our children. We're told to raise children in the faith. And every week as we go to church, that if a child asks you, why do we celebrate these things? Why do we do these things? Your job as you're driving to church is to answer those questions. And you get to disciple these children. And so this is not only true of Jewish culture, but this is a God-set institute that the regular reminders serve to remind us of where we've come from. Because we as people are prone to forget. We are prone to wander. We are prone to be swept up in the world. And so God has instituted by his grace regular reminders of his truth for us. And so here we see the parents regularly practicing obedience And there's a warning in Hebrews chapter 10 about let us not neglect the regular gathering of the saints. And just as a faithful Jew would have to regularly go up year after year after year, also a faithful Christian should not neglect the gathering of the saints Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. The reason we gather on the Lord's Day is not just to add another habit to our life, but it's to remind ourselves of things that are ultimately meaningful. So we don't get caught up in the habits and routines of life and forget what is ultimately important. You see, the most important thing that you will ever do is worship God with your life. And the most important way in which you can keep yourself on that journey is to gather with the Lord's people and to remind yourself of that truth. And so a faithful Jew goes year after year after year to the Passover to remind themselves of God and of his resurrection. And these Jewish people, Mary and Joseph and the whole caravan that's traveling up with them, they go and it is a sign for them of obedience. But remember, this is an inconvenience for them. Joseph is poor. Mary is poor. They are humble people, but every single year they make this long journey into Jerusalem. They stay there for a week. They buy sacrificial offerings. They offer it. They partake in the Passover feast, and then they journey back. And we see once again that obedience is never something that is just convenient. 
Obedience is always costly. And even this regular obedience is not neglected by Mary and Joseph. Instead, they go faithfully every year to the Feast of Passover. And on the 12th year, when Jesus is 12 years old, they also go up again according to custom. And they bring Jesus with them this time. And then they celebrate the Passover together. They teach Jesus all these things. You can imagine all the sacrificial lambs that are slain during that time. And they're teaching Jesus about what the significance of this lamb is, having almost no idea about what is to come. And then, at verse 43, Luke in his typical fashion just transitions. And he says, And when the feast was ended, as they were turning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. So here we have a scene that has been set. You have almost like uh, when a camera pans away in a movie and it kind of like focuses on one item or one detail that isn't narrated, it's not focused on by the characters, but the, whoever's telling the story, the director wants you to pay attention to this detail. And Luke, like a good storyteller, is now letting us pay attention to this detail. This sets up a drama that's gonna take place. He, Jesus, stays behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. So this now sets up a drama that's going to unfold. And this then leads us into the second part of the story, which is the problem as it begins to be discovered by the parents. So in verse 44, we see that problem. We see, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they begin to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So here we have a problem. So Mary and Joseph leave Jerusalem and they journey about a day's, they journey away for about a day. And when they make campfall that night with the whole caravan, they're looking around and then they realize Jesus is nowhere to be found. Now, it's one thing for a parent to leave a child in a grocery store or to leave someone behind. It's one thing for your parents to have forgotten you or I one day when we were children. It's a whole nother thing to forget Jesus as a child and just leave him and depart. But we're not supposed to understand that Mary and Joseph are being negligent parents in any way. In fact, it is almost a testimony to the community and the strength of this community that they make it almost a day's journey out before they even begin to question where Jesus is. They're traveling in a massive caravan of faithful believers. And here we see that at nightfall is when they start to realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. And Joseph, maybe he, he sees Mary and he sees Jesus isn't with Mary. And he goes, well, I thought he was traveling with you. And then Mary, she's a woman, so she's not going to be wrong about this. She says, no, I thought he was with you. And then Joseph, panicked, because he's about to be wrong, starts turning around and looking at their relatives and their acquaintances and their friends. And he goes, have you guys seen Jesus? Like maybe he's looking for a bailout at this moment. And as the night presses on, as campfall begins to fall, as the, the sun goes down, Mary and Joseph realize that Jesus is not in the caravan. Jesus is, in fact, nowhere to be found. They check with their close family. They don't see him. They check with the acquaintances, the distant travelers of the caravan. They don't know where Jesus is. They haven't seen him. And you can imagine the panic that begins to set in. You see, Jesus is Mary's first son. He's the firstborn of this family. And so it's not like losing any other child. This is the firstborn, the heir of the family. And Joseph and Mary have no idea where he is. And this is not a world where you can call back to the Jerusalem city police and have them post wanted posters everywhere or have them send out a bolo saying, look for Jesus, and this is what he looks like. This is a world in which photo photographs don't exist. This is a world in which they're going to have to physically travel back for a day. And they don't have any way of getting in communication with Jesus except for literally running into him. 
And so you can imagine the kind of fear that is setting in to Mary and Joseph. They're good parents. They're faithful parents year after year, and they've taken well to look after Jesus. And now there's, there's a hint of panic in the air. And so you can imagine Mary and Joseph go to bed maybe late that night, right? They've stayed up late. They've considered all their options. The caravan is going forward the next day. And Mary and Joseph are like, well, we can't just keep going. We have to go back. We don't know where he is. He might not be in Jerusalem. He might be somewhere else. We don't know, but we have to go back and look. And so maybe late that night, they crawl into bed and they've packed their things and they can hardly sleep that night. And they get up early the next morning because they're tossing and turning, anxious to get on the road. And then they depart. The caravan heads one way. Mary and Joseph head back to Jerusalem. And they journey a whole day. A whole day for thoughts to run through their head. A whole day for nervousness to set in. A whole day for all this panic to begin to seep in. And what if you never see Jesus again? Or what if you've lost this child forever? And then they journey for a whole day. They get to Jerusalem. They make camp. And then the next morning, the third day, they begin to search around the city of Jerusalem for Jesus. Now, this is a time where there is massive commotion going on. Remember, the Passover has just ended. The Feast of Unleavened Bread has just ended. And so there's a lot of people in and out of the city. There's a lot of people leaving, a lot of people who set up shop just to make a couple bucks during this feast who are now departing the city. So there's a lot of commotion going on. And so Mary and Joseph go into the city with maybe very little hope of finding Jesus. And so they look all over the city. They look everywhere. And it says, And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. So here you have the problem that's been introduced, and now we're going to see the dialogue that takes place between Mary and Jesus. And this dialogue is set by the scene that we come onto. When they, when they walk into Jerusalem, they look around, they find Jesus, and they see that he's sitting in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, it's important to note that not only is the Passover a time for all faithful Jews to converge, but you got to think about all the highest religious teachers, all the most faithful religious Jews, who would also converge on Jerusalem during the Feast of the Passover. And so this is not like the regular run-of-the-mill temple Jews who are sitting there, the regular doctors and lawyers who would come to talk about the law. This is the best of the best of what all Jerusalem and all Judea has to offer from Jewish scholarship in the temple together, probably gathering after the Passover to discuss the finer points of theology, messianic prophecy. What do you think they meant when the day of the Lord comes? Maybe they have some sessions and seminars. This is like for us, for example, like a, a TGC conference or something like that. This is like the best of the best coming together and they're going to discuss theology. And so Jesus, they, they bump into the temple and they see Jesus sitting in this like array of teachers and scribes. And he's not only listening to them, but he is asking them questions. And not only is he asking them questions, but in verse 47 we see, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and notice at his answers. So Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, is sitting in a room full of scribes and Pharisees and possibly all their other students, people who are gathered to hear this conversation happen. And he begins to ask maybe an initial question. And they kick the question around for a while and then he asks a follow-up question and then a follow-up question. And eventually they realize we should ask him a question just to see if he knows his stuff or is he just asking all the controversial questions right off the bat to confuse us. And then they notice that not only they're amazed at the level of questions that he's asking, but they're also amazed at his answers that he's giving to the questions that they ask him. 
Now again, this is not just any Pharisees. These are not just any religious leaders. These are like the best of the best of the faithful Pharisees. And so here you have boy Jesus, 12 years old, putting on full display knowledge. And then the question becomes, where does a 12-year-old boy get this kind of knowledge? Jesus is a carpenter's son. He doesn't study under the feet of the Pharisees. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Nazareth. He's home to, he's, he's the child of poor parents. So it's not like he's getting the best of the best of education that the Jewish people had to offer. And so then the question is, well, how does Jesus get this kind of knowledge? And remember, Jesus is both divine and human. He has two natures. And so then the question becomes, well, which nature is on display at this moment in time? Is it that God is omniscient, so therefore Jesus is omniscient and he knows all these things and he understands all these things? That's possible. But I would submit to you that what R.C. Sproul comes to and what John MacArthur comes to and what many of the scholars who study this passage come to is this is not a demonstration of the divine nature, but this is rather a demonstration of Jesus's human nature. And the reason we can get there, the reason they make that conclusion is because he's not doing anything miraculous at this moment. He's not doing anything out of the ordinary or supernatural. And in his earthly ministry, when that begins, he starts doing supernatural things and then making prophecies and declarations of the future, which could be in part due to his divine nature. But at this moment in time, he's simply asking and answering questions. These are all things that humans are capable of doing. We've been given brains, we've been given logic. So then why don't we see all of our 12-year-olds doing things like this? Well, you and I, and every other 12-year-old who's ever existed, has been corrupted by a sin nature. And sin affects far more than just our ability to have a moral compass. Sin and the fall affects our health. It affects our bodies. It affects our devotions. It affects our memories and our thoughts and our inclinations and our desires. And this sin nature is not present in Jesus. This sin nature is not a part of his upbringing. So you have here a 12-year-old child, never been corrupted by sin, never for one moment not had a good desire or a good inclination or a righteous thought. And you have 12 years of this perfect human nature growing up. And in this 12 years of perfect human nature, Jesus has accumulated this vast array of understanding, this vast array of knowledge, logic. He's never made a mistake. And he is putting on display this perfect human nature, even at 12 years old, and is blowing the minds of the Pharisees, who for their entire lives committed to study the scriptures. And because of their broken, sinful natures, they are still limited. They still have a cap on what they can know. And this 12-year-old boy is blowing them away with his understanding, with his articulation, and with his questions. And this boy is amazing, not only them, but he's amazing all the people in the crowd and Mary and Joseph walk into this scene. This is the, this is the moment that they walk into. And everyone else is amazed, and it says that Mary and Joseph are astonished. And that has maybe a little bit more negative connotation. And then you get Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, I don't know if she pulls him out of the crowd or she just like shouts from the back at him or how this interaction takes place. But his mother says to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
She says, son, why have you treated us so? Mary does not care that he is answering the best of the best theological minds. She, like all other mothers who would be in this situation, wants to get straight to the point. Where were you at, Jesus? Why didn't you follow with the caravan? Why weren't you obedient as you always are to us? You see, they had no good reason to micromanage Jesus. For 12 years of life, he has been nothing but the perfect child. And he's had sinful parents, and you can imagine what it's like to raise a perfect child. And unlike you and I who thought we were perfect children with sinful parents, Jesus was actually a perfect person with sinful parents. (laughs) And here, you have Mary, maybe for the first time in her life, having to rebuke Jesus. And she says, son, why have you treated us so? And this is a rebuke. She's, She's saying that he wasn't what they had expected him to be like. He wasn't obedient in the capacity that they had expected him to be obedient. So then here's a question. Is this a mar on Jesus? That he wasn't obedient to Mary and Joseph at this moment? I think the answer that Jesus gives gives us a clue as to why this is not him being disobedient to the point of sin. And here's why. And he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus makes a statement, or he rather asks a question in response to Mary's question. And his question implies that they should have known what was coming. And his follow-up is, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so here's the, the, the loop that has been exposed, which is that we are called to be obedient to our parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We are called to, as citizens, submit to the government, because that is the authority that God has instituted over us. Servants and slaves should submit to their masters, because this is right. This is how the Lord has ordered it. But there is one category of obedience that we don't have to submit to those authorities in, and that is if the obedience to those authorities goes against obedience to God the Father. If you're obedient to the government against the obedience to God, you are being disobedient. These authorities are institutes and they are given by God, but we are to be obedient to them so far as they don't impede on our obedience to the Father. And here Jesus has exposed why he has not sinned in this moment because he says that I must be in my Father's house. He says the will of his Father, the will of God, has compelled him to be doing this in this moment. And so even though Mary was not on the same page and Joseph wasn't on the same page with that, Jesus has been, yes, disobedient to Mary and Joseph in the sense that he wasn't the upstanding child that they had expected him to be. But it wasn't because he was being rebellious. And it wasn't because he was just being a a typical 12-year-old. He's not an aloof person. He stays behind because he is being about his father's business, as some translations would say. He's in his father's house. He has a mission, and the will of God drives him in this mission, and the will of God goes beyond the will of his earthly father and his earthly mother. So Jesus has not sinned in this moment. Mary was not expecting this. Joseph was not expecting this. But Jesus, not only at this moment, but for his whole earthly ministry, does things that people don't expect him to do, and people are often left confused. But what he says goes even further than this. He not only says that I must be in my father's house, but by saying that God is his father, he says, my father, he uses a possessive term 
to talk about God. He is now referring to God, the Jewish God, as his personal father, which up until this point, Jesus 12 years old, that would have never been heard before. This is the first time that something like that is stated in scripture. And Jesus applies this not just broadly to the Jewish people. He says that not that God is the father of Israel, but that God is his personal father. And so he says, in effect, that he is God's son. And this question of sonship, this question of fatherhood, goes beyond the origin or goes beyond the, um, the like, a, a DNA level of sonship connection. In the West, we tend to think of sonship as just DNA. But this goes beyond that. This, when he says he is, he, it is his father's house and he is the son of God, he is making claims about his nature or his substance, which means he's not saying that he is a derivative offspring of the father, that he is created of the father because all humans are created of the father. He is saying that he is of one nature with the father. Theologians would later come to term this homoousios, which is one nature or one substance with the father which is to say that Jesus is not the first among many created beings. He is of the same nature, of the same substance as the Father. And this is the first time that he says this. This is the first words that he speaks. But he goes on to say the same thing, make these same affirmations throughout the whole Gospels. And eventually, this is what gets him killed. 12-year-old Jesus makes a statement. And just so you know that I'm not misusing this sonship language, I want, I want you to know how Luke would otherwise use this term of sons. He refers to, for example, believers as sons of the resurrection, that we are at one nature of one kind with the resurrection. In other places in Scripture, we'll hear uh, Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. Not that they are offspring of thunder, but he's saying that they are in nature or in likeness with thunder because they have hard, heavy teaching and sometimes that borders on sinfulness for them. You hear Jesus calling Judas, who would betray him uh, in his high priestly prayer. He says, I have lost none of those whom you have given me except the son of destruction, referring to Judas. And also other words in scripture, there's plenty of examples for this. He, in Ephesians, we see Paul referring to the children who are under the prince of the power of the air, that they are sons of disobedience. And so this sonship language is in talking about essence. It's talking about nature. That's how scripture refers to sonship. And so when Jesus says he is the son of God, he is making a claim about his nature. He is deifying himself. He's just made a claim to divinity at 12 years old. And this is not to be misunderstood. And this is not the disciples taking this out of context and making it something that it's not. This same claim, almost to a T, this same language, is what the scribes and Pharisees eventually hear in a 30-year-old Jesus, and they begin to plot his death as a result of hearing it. In fact, we can turn there to John chapter 5, verse 18. John chapter 5, verse 18, we see something interesting here. Jesus has just healed someone on the Sabbath. And he goes back and forth with the Pharisees. And he says in verse 17 of John chapter 5, My father, that's that same language, my father is working until now, and I am working. 
He's making another claim to divinity. And lest you think that you and I and the disciples have misunderstood him, and really it's the modern scholars and the imams who have gotten this right, notice what is said next in this gospel. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, note, making himself equal with God. A Jewish person referring to their own offspring would not see their offspring as being equal with them. But the sonship language goes beyond DNA offspring. The sonship language goes into substance. And, he, and the Jews understand this. They know exactly what he's saying. And this is the exact reason why they eventually kill him. Because he was making himself equal with God. And for them, this is blasphemy. As a matter of fact, this is the exact crime that is charged to Jesus when he is brought before the high priests. In fact, if we turn there, we can go to John, in John's gospel, and we can go, or sorry, to Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Matthew 26 and 57. And Jesus, this is him as an adult, this is after his earthly ministry. He's just been arrested by the Jewish people. In verse 57 it says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though they brought many false witnesses forward. And at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And notice the high priest's reaction, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? Now you have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. The high priest put Jesus on trial and convict him of the sin or the crime of blasphemy. Which, if our modern understanding of Jesus is correct, he just has committed blasphemy because he wasn't God and he claims to be God. That's if secular scholarship is correct, that Jesus wasn't like God, that he committed blasphemy. So how could this Jesus be a good prophet if he's a blasphemer of God? How could Jesus be a good moral teacher if he's so distorted that he thinks he is God? There's no one who we would say even a morally right person who claims to be God that there's not something weird about them. And here we say that Jesus was actually correct in his self-assessment. That when he claims to be God, that he actually was God. There's only two things you can do with Jesus. You can affirm what he says to be true, or you can reject what he says, but you can't have this middle ground where you say Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. He was God. He claimed to be God, and that can't be separated from the rest of his teachings. And this didn't start when he's 30. 
This started when he was 12 years old. He says, I must be in my father's house. And in typical disciple fashion, someone who hears what Jesus says, Mary and Joseph respond by, by, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. How often have we heard the parables of Jesus with the disciples and they're interacting back and forth and Jesus finishes explaining a parable and the disciples are like discussing among themselves, what does he mean? I have no idea what he just said. You ask him. No, you ask him. And then eventually Jesus explains what he says and this is an often back and forth interaction between Jesus and his disciples. They have no idea what he's talking about. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Mary and Joseph also have no idea what he's saying here. This revelation, if true, is a profound revelation about God. This is a profound revelation about Jesus. And Mary and Joseph shouldn't be uh, held accountable for the fact that they weren't right ready to accept it. This is a whole new thing. And if you think back, Luke has just finished, for us, remember, we've just finished reading uh, literally a chapter ago about how the angel shows up to Mary and tells her who the son is going to be. And that we have many people prophesy over this child. And then the question you and I might come to is, well, how does at least Mary not get it? How does she not on the same page about knowing who Jesus is? But remember, 12 years have passed by since that has happened. And Mary is just a person. She's human. And so like you and I, time can erode firm convictions. Time can erode confidence in the truth. And she has gone year after year after year, faithfully raising Jesus, faithfully observing the Passover, faithfully doing all that she should do as a faithful Jew. But those memories of the prophecy maybe have been fading over time. And at some point, maybe she begins to doubt the legitimacy of them. And when this moment occurs, the doubt is so great that she's actually confused about what Jesus is saying. She said, and it says that both Mary and Joseph, both who've had these divine revelation to give, given to them, they, neither of them understand what he's saying or what he spoke to them. But they're just people with 12 years of time that have passed by since the last divine revelation was given to them. And so we can't necessarily be surprised that Mary and Joseph are confused at this moment. That's not to say that before this, Jesus never claimed to be God, but this is the first time. This is just the passing of time, people forgetting things that would have already been told to them, and Jesus reminding them. Remember, Jesus expects them to remember. He says, did you not know? That's how he starts off his question. So he knew, he expected them to know, but they have forgotten with the passing of time. And so that leads us into this resolution, this conclusion of the story. And the story concludes in verse 51, and it concludes in typical Luke fashion, with very little flair. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This is the second time we've had that statement about Mary that she treasured up these things in her heart. That the last time was when a new revelation was given to her. She treasured up these things in her heart. And now again, we see Mary treasuring up these things in her heart. Maybe reminding herself to store up what Jesus has said. She is at this moment not thinking that Jesus was disobedient. She's recognizing that what he said was true and she needs to now reconcile her experience with the truth of what he said. She is treasuring these things up in her heart. She's not rebuking Jesus. She's not calling him into question. She is saying that you're right. I just maybe not, don't get it. I need to meditate over these things. She treasures them up in her heart. And we also see that Jesus was submissive to his parents. He was submissive to them. 
So the previous narrative is not an out of step with his relationship. He is continuing to be submissive to his parents. That is him being a perfect child is perfectly obedient, perfectly submissive. And we see again in scripture, submission is never a bad thing. Submission is something that God ordains as a right and fitting thing. The, the son submits to the will of the father, but it doesn't make him any less than the father. The spirit does the bidding of the son. It doesn't make him any less than the son. The, the Trinity is all of equal worth. Submission for us doesn't mean that it makes us less than our employers. It just means that we are following God's divine ordinance as it has been stated. God calls us to submit. He calls us to do so, and it's never seen as a bad thing in the text. It's never seen as a bad thing. And he goes down with them, and they came to Nazareth. He's submissive to them. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And just like it was the will of God for him to stay in Jerusalem, then it is now the will of God for him to move on and travel back with his parents to Nazareth and to be submissive to them, to grow up. And eventually, Jesus makes a lot of these back-and-forth journeys to Jerusalem. In his earthly ministry, he makes a few journeys into the, the temple. You can read about them in some of the other Gospels. But eventually, the next time we see Jesus in the temple, in Luke's gospel, is at the time when he's about to be crucified. And Jesus goes back and forth to Jerusalem, back and forth, and eventually he leaves Jerusalem for the last time, and he returns to Jerusalem as an adult. And he comes in riding on a horse, riding on a donkey, and he is praised by the people. And within a few days, that praise fades away because they realize that He's not coming for a political revolution. He's not doing what we expected him to do. Instead, his plan is to just keep teaching. And the bitterness of the Pharisees sets in so deep, and the bitterness of Judas sets in so deep because he's been sitting with this guy for three years, and he can't understand why this guy doesn't want to start a political revolution. He has all the ammunition. He has everything he could possibly need to start a revolt. And so Judas betrays Jesus. He sells him out. And then he goes and gives him the kiss to identify him as the one who the crowd should take away. And then this crowd captures Jesus. And then the account that we just read takes place where they bring him before the high priest. And they charge him with committing blasphemy, the very sin that we've seen him potentially commit right here. But we know that it's not blasphemy because Jesus was God. But like a sheep before his shears, it is silent. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he says nothing. He takes all the accusations, all the false claims, and he bears it upon himself. And he bears it upon himself and he's submissive to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you and I look back at this and we go, how could that be possible for the king of glory to submit himself to the point of death? But scripture tells us that it is the very will of the father that he does these things because he does this even with the father's accusations. That he takes accusations that are not his to bear and he bears them upon himself for the sake of you and for the sake of me. And he takes all the sin of the world all upon himself. And he, he, as God pours out the wrath that he has against sin on Jesus, Jesus takes every ounce of the punishment that was meant for you and was meant for me. And he, he bears it and he eventually cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he's confused about what's happening, but he calls these things out to quote Psalm 22 which at the end of that psalm declares his victory over death and predicts the very crucifixion that he's taking place in right now. And he cries out these things and then he commits his hands into the spirit of the Father. And three days later, he comes out of the grave. He, the tomb is empty. The people are again confused about what's happening. The disciples are confused. Mary's confused. 
And then he starts appearing to disciples and teaching them that shouldn't you have expected this? This was the resurrection that I was telling you about the whole time. And just like at this moment when Jesus' parents are confused about what he's saying, the disciples are confused. They're telling each other about the encounters they've had with Jesus and they don't believe each other. Thomas even says, unless I touch him, unless I touch the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, I won't even believe it. Because he's so distraught about his Lord being killed. And so Jesus meets Thomas where he's at. And he, he, he proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the Lord. That he did what he said he was going to do. That he paid for sin on the cross. That that was not a random Roman crucifixion, but it was the pinnacle of human history. The sin of man completely paid for by a perfect man. So that wicked men could go by and that God would both be the judge, a just judge, and the justifier of sinful people. That you and I, as we commit sins our whole life, could never pay the debt that we owe God. Because the standard isn't good or better, the standard is perfect. And there's only one perfect man. And he lived 2,000 years ago. And he already did what he said he was going to do. So you and I can stop trying to fake it before God. So you and I can stop trying to pretend like we don't have sin problems. Because we do. And what we're called to do is not hide our sin, not create our own covering. We are called to cast our sins before the cross and to plead with Jesus that, Lord, take my sins away because he has offered to take our sins away. And he graciously does so. He covers them with his blood and he offers for us to not only be debt-free but also sons of God. And he calls us to repentance so that we can enjoy full obedience and we can enjoy the glorification that comes with being a new creation in Christ. And that is the offer of the gospel. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we love you because you first loved us and because you sent your Son down on this earth to die for us. And Lord, the only fitting response, the only right response to that is to worship you. It's to say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get why you would do that. But Lord, somehow, way, I trust that that did count for me, that that is possible. And the only fitting response beyond that is for us to worship you, Lord. So I pray that as we move into a time of reflection, of prayer, and ultimately of worship, that the culmination of tonight would be the glorifying of your name, Father. That you would enable us to worship you rightly, to put off the sin that we've struggled with this week, to put off the sin that we've struggled with today, to put off the sin that we struggle with ongoing in our minds, to put those things off and to pour your spirit out on us so that we can rightly orient ourselves to worship you. Father, we're asking you to move so that we can glorify you. We want to partake in the worship of your holy and precious name. Amen.